This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 1077 FM, your community radio station, streaming online at WVEW.org. You are listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on iTunes at Indigo Radio, replaying Tuesdays at 3 o'clock. The views of this show are those of the guests and the hosts and not the radio station. Indigo Radio is a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. I am Kelly Juno, and I um, am an elementary school teacher in Massachusetts. Hi, Kelly. I am Anna Milani, and I am a local educator and uh, also a student right now at UMass Amherst studying public health. And today we're going to be spending the hour talking about methadone, clinics, addiction, and recovery. We're going to be playing an interview with Dr. Rashia Alam, who works at the Lexington Center for Recovery just outside of New York City. And she has worked in addiction for 10 years. And also with Jed Pop, who is a Brattleboro local, and he's going to speak about his own addiction recovery. And um, what we're going to do is start us off with some Billie Holiday. And we will be right back. Thank you. 
That was Billie Holiday with Easy to Love. Billie Holiday, of course, died from um, congestive heart failure, which was a complication with her lifelong struggle um, with drugs and alcohol. So, Anna, you're studying public health as a PhD student at UMass. Can you just briefly explain what public health is and what the public health discourse is on opioid addiction? Sure. So public health is looking at the health of populations and the conditions in which people can be healthy and patterns of disease. So sort of when you look at medicine, medicine is is treating and public health is looking at how can we prevent people getting sick and what are the large patterns of disease and illness. And so right now around opioids, the public health discourse is really pushing it back against the victim blaming mentality around addiction that people are making bad choices, but that rather it's a chronic illness that needs to be treated with a long-term treatment, which is extremely difficult because, as we know, there's often um, not enough treatment plans and oftentimes they're short-term. So the answers in public health around it vary. There's definitely an ongoing conversation around harm reduction methods like methadone and suboxone, which we're going to be talking about today. Often it looks at trauma, um, so that people have experienced some sort of trauma and that they've turned to drugs um, or they're forced into taking drugs. But often this conversation still comes around to individual choices rather than the social determinants of addiction, which means looks at what are the conditions that produce trauma that actually lead to addiction. Uh, so that's sort of the conversation going on right now in public health. And Kelly, you're a teacher and you teach young kids. Why do you feel like this conversation around methadone and addiction is important? I mean, part of this I see as a teacher and also as a community member. So as a teacher, I see kids who are affected by opioid addiction. And when somebody has an addiction, that affects everyone around them. And if they're a parent, it makes it very hard to like care for your addiction as you're caring for your kids. And we see it in schools all the time. And it, it generally comes out in behavior in schools, um, whether it's challenging behavior with um, kids who are really depressed and withdrawn because they're so very much affected by um, their parents' addiction. Um, and it's huge. Like, we know the opioid crisis is huge, and so it manifests itself very much in schools. And I also think about, like, the future of my kids and how this they'll this will affect them for the rest of their lives, um, experiencing um, the adults who are taking care of them suffer from this disease. I remember last year, um, I was, we were talking, um, I was talking with my kids about, like, issues they see in Brattleboro and um, questions they had about them. And I had a girl who drew a picture of a heroin needle. Um, so they're very much um, exposed to it. And the other thing for me as a community member, um, engaging with the conversation around panhandling and homelessness that is so frequently on the front page of uh, in the in the newspaper and in the select board meetings um, and on Facebook, I the discourse I hear is that um, is is very individualistic. So people with addiction, it is their individual choice, and they made a bad choice and they continue to make a bad choice. Um, and I want to shift the discourse 
I don't want to engage with that discourse. I'm not interested in that. I want to engage. I want to shift the discourse to being this is a public health issues that comes from larger determinants of why people self-medicate and why these drugs exist in the first place. Um, so right now we're going to actually go to a two-part interview. We interview Dr. Rashia Alam. Dr. Alam is an addiction doctor working at a recovery center right outside of New York City, the Lexington Center for Recovery. And so she's going to start off by telling us a little bit about how methadone works. Rashia, can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. My name is Rashia Elam. I am Trina's family medicine, but also board certified in addiction medicine. I've been practicing addiction medicine for 10 years now and um, started out in providing primary care for people with opiate dependence or with heroin addiction and just found myself enjoying it so much that I have stopped practicing family medicine and now almost exclusively in providing care to people with drug addiction. We're focusing the show on methadone and recovery. Can you explain what methadone is and then how it works? Sure. So methadone actually um, has been around since World War II. During the war, European troops were unable to get um, morphine because there were there were restrictions on the trade routes or you know, getting getting the natural opiates from um, from Asia. So it's actually it was synthesized in the laboratory, and what they found was that methadone actually has a longer half life, meaning it lasts longer than um, so actually more effective for that purpose for as a pain medication than morphine did. So instead of having to give it every couple of hours, it could be administered once every 12 to 24 hours and have sort of the same effect or as mm-hmm. a lasting effect. So I was seeing it was used as a painkiller, right? And now predominantly right now is it used as a harm reduction treatment to treat addiction? It's used as a treatment to treat addiction, but it's also used very widely in, in pain management for people with chronic pain and for people with okay. cancer pain. So it's used in a variety of settings, but the one that's most commonly associated with is for the treatment of addiction. Okay. And what's the difference between methadone and suboxone? So the difference is actually, so like we kind of talked about, that methadone is um, it's longer acting, but also methadone is a full, what we call a full agonist of the opioid receptor meaning that it attaches and acts in the same way that the other opiates, like the opiates of abuse, like heroin and pain medications, it attaches and works in the same way, but can cause the same release of neurotransmitters. Whereas Suboxone or Buprenorphine, which is a generic name for it, it is a partial agonist, so it doesn't cause the full effect. You know, a lot of people, when when you're talking about opiates, just in case getting high, and that's sort of a big question is, can you get high from methadone and suboxone? And the answer is yes, you can get high. The high from suboxone is probably less physiologically because it is only a partial, a partial agonist, meaning it only partially attaches. So that's the main difference between okay. suboxone and methadone. 
And then the other thing is, is this correct that with methadone, you have to go into the clinic, and suboxone, you can get a prescription to take home? Is that right? Absolutely. So that's the other major difference is that for methadone, methadone is prescribed for pain. You can get a prescription for it and get it once a month, but for the treatment of addiction, you are expected to be enrolled in a clinic to get methadone. However, with suboxone, it is a prescription that is at the discretion of the physician, can be given like any other controlled substance, up to a 30-day supply of medication can be given. Okay. So I would love to get into then yourself as a doctor and, and working on this around addiction. Do you think that one is better than the other? I think that they're different. And I think that um, in the treatment of addiction, that it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that we are trying to treat the individual, you know, because this is such a widespread problem. Everybody wants to tackle the problem, but everybody has different needs. And so there are, you know, different medications for different people. We have to treat everybody individually. I would say that one of the issues with Suboxone is that it can be prescribed. It takes an eight-hour course to prescribe. So anybody who's taken the course can prescribe. And so methadone inherently has a set of structures that support people in sort of attaining recovery or improving their lives, whereas, you know, the idea of just getting a prescription and, and going is sort of not supportive of the idea of really, you know, offering treatment. So that's mm-hmm. one of the differences and, and sort of like advantages, disadvantages of suboxone versus methadone that I see is, is sort of the, the way that it's administered. Okay. And what do you say, cause, and I, this is one of the things I always hear, and I feel myself confused about it, is people who say, well, you're treating addiction just with another drug, and then people are going to be addicted to that. What are your thoughts on on that sentiment? I mean, I think it's something that I myself could be confused about sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. you know, I think we have to really get to the heart and the essence of what it is we're trying to do, which is to save people's lives and to improve their lives. And so... You know, the idea of trading one addiction for another. According to the DSM, so that's what we use to to diagnose, you know, the standard for diagnosis of mental illness, addiction is defined as the behaviors, you know, the the negative behaviors that are associated with um, drug use. Methadone actually, the methadone clinic structure addresses that in that we are foremost trying to engage people in improving their lives and addressing their drug use in an active way. Mm-hmm. So so to that end, um, you're trading addiction for dependence with the opportunity for for hopefully some improvement in their lives. And do you what are the other services that um, usually happen in a methadone clinic for people? In New York, um, you know, methadone has Methadone clinics have been around since the 60s, the late 60s and 70s, and so they've developed all of these supports, things like primary care, mental health services, you know, sort of like wraparound services, connection to social service agencies, and um, so those are the some of the things that are offered. Right now, I'm actually working in a outside of New York City. There are OASIS, which is our, our regulating body, requires that you offer a certain amount of counseling, 
you know, that we're addressing all of the life areas that are associated mm-hmm. with people's use. And what uh, would you say are the demographics of the people that use the clinics? So it, it varies. It really varies. Um, I think it depends on the geographic location. The clinic that I'm in right now, if you're talking about gender, I would say that it's probably about 70% male and 30% female. I think there are a lot of factors that contribute to that. I think that for women who are actively addicted, that it's sometimes easier for them to maintain their addiction financially for a variety of reasons, So, including sex work, that it's easier for them. So we see a lot of men coming to treatment more than women. Also, I think Mm -hmm. women experience a lot of stigma when they come to treatment, especially if they have children um, because of fear of involvement, you know, the Child Protective Services. Right now, it's 70-30 men to women, and, um, you know, it's interesting that the county that I'm in right now, is it's a, it's a relatively diverse county, but the majority of our patients are Caucasian, which is obviously a little bit different from in some of the areas in the city where the clinics happen to be that have a larger percentage of people of color. So you tend to mm-hmm. see that demographic more in treatment in the city. Statistics show that it transcends... Uh, race, class, and all those things, but it's pretty balanced if you look at the numbers. Okay, yeah, that was what the question I have in my head because what I observe here, which I know is not the entire picture, but only what I see through my when I was working at the Women's Freedom Center here, was that the people that were using the methadone clinic are either poor, low income. I'm wondering if that is a trend or if that is not correct to say that. No, I mean, so absolutely. I mean, if we think about it, I didn't talk about economic diversity, but people with money have more means and so have sort of better ways to access, different ways to access treatment. For example, somebody who can pay a private physician is able to get opiates from their physician or able to get whatever medications they want from a physician if they're paying out of pocket. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we find that people of... um, lower socioeconomic status are forced into more desperate situations and, and are probably more likely to seek treatment at these, these clinics that are, I know it varies by state, but in New York are, do accept Medicaid. Yeah. Yeah. And here in Vermont, they do accept Medicaid. And one of the things we were talking about today is around, so in Vermont, the habit, they're called Habit Opco clinics and they're owned by Bain Capital, which is the investment firm in Boston. Bain also owns all the Habit Opco clinics in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. And so I would love your thoughts on that, is that there's this private ownership of these clinics and how it's done in New York. Okay, so I can speak in in New York that we have a variety. We don't have as many privately owned clinics. We do have some for-profit clinics, but, you know, you're just dealing with so many people that um, the the hospital-based clinics really have been more predominant in this area. So it's a much different situation from areas of the country where there are these for-profit, privately-owned companies. And I actually have colleagues that work in, in these settings, and they have a much different approach to treatment than some of the the larger hospital-based and non-for-profit clinics. For example, sort of like uh, limiting medication doses and 
you know, less of a harm reduction and more of an abstinence-based policy is one of the differences that I've heard between these two types. And again, every company probably has a different set of um, of operating regulations, but that's just what I've heard so far in terms of the difference between the for-profit and non-profit and hospital-based clinics. You know, we we know that, for example, we've heard stories about these rehabs, these for-profit rehabs throughout the country that are profiting on um, disease of addiction. And I mean, my only comment on that is that we live in America. The idea that people would try to profit, I mean, people are profiting off of any every other disease, there's a profit attached to that mm-hmm. as well. So why would addiction be any different? Yeah, and I work, I'm studying public health, and so I try and get my students to look at that too, is that there are definitely people that profit off, just like you said, profit off disease and have incentives to keep people sick because there's profits to be made. And not that it's maybe this, like, intentionally evil thing. It's just that this is actually how capitalism works, right? Absolutely. So that was part one of Dr. Alam's interview. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about what she said and then play part two of her interview after we play um, after a song break. So this is Tim Buckley with Song of the Siren. Long afloat on shipless oceans I did all my best to smile Till your singing and fingers drew me loving to your eye and you sang sail to me sail to me let me enfold you are listening to Indigo Radio. Um, so we just heard uh, part, part one of the interview with Dr. Rashia Alam, who is a doctor working at a recovery center, like a methadone clinic outside of New York City. And I, one of the things, Anna, that kind of strikes me about that interview is her talking as you, your discussion about private clinics and public clinics and how private corporations have their hands in the recovery industry, essentially. Right. 
and how substance abuse treatment is actually a $7.7 billion industry. Yeah. And so there's huge profits to be made. And one of the things that I learned when I was researching this show was how the Sackler family, who is also, they're also like art connoisseurs. So they donate monies to museums and they have like wings named after them and like the Louvre and the Met and like all these huge museums, how they basically knowingly manufactured Oxycontin because they knew how addictive it was as a painkiller. So I'll just like briefly give you a history of what happened, which is that they, the Sackler family were um, medical advertising pioneers in the forties. And so they were, they were pushing advertising medications in magazines and newspapers. And so that, you know, the general public knew about medication pills. Um, And they ended up buying Purdue pharmacy, which at the time was a really small business, but they essentially hit the jackpot when they um, manufactured a drug using oxycodone to as a time release pain management. And it used to be this, like it was another form of this drug was used for terminal cancer patients. But when the patent was up and they wanted to continue making money off the drug, they started marketing it to back pain patients and people with toothaches and people, people with menstrual pain and basically just the general public, anybody with any pain. And they deliberately called it Oxycontin because it created this confusion uh, between oxycodone and codeine and oxycotton. And codeine is basically a weak, a weak opioid. And so doctors saw this as like a weak, weaker form of mor- uh, morphine um, because morphine sounds so serious and so strong. And so they weren't just going to prescribe morphine to the general public. But, oxy- but um, oxycodone is actually much stronger than morphine. And they knew that. And they created a pill for the essentially for the general public. And they created this confusion around the name. And they knew exactly what was happening. They knew that people were overdosing. And they knew that people were getting addicted and dying. And they sort of had this aerial view of the whole thing. And they made the biggest fortune in the pharmaceutical industry. Also, just a, another note is that uh, Purdue Pharma is under a huge lawsuit from a number of states. And Vermont is also suing Purdue, Purdue Pharma right now for, you know, what they're saying is misuse and um, misadvertising of that, of oxycodone. Yeah. So I guess this is one of the reasons I want to, I think we need to get away from the individual choices narrative and look at the larger forces that are involved here. Um, so I think we're going to play part two of Dr. Alam's interview now. Back to sort of thinking about uh, methadone specifically as a treatment. What's your hope? Is your and maybe it's more nuanced, but thinking about do, do people need to be on it for the rest of their lives, or is that really on an individual basis? Yeah, it's individual. I think that, you know, part of the treatment process is developing treatment goals, and everybody has different treatment goals. I think one of the first goals for most people is to stop engaging in unsafe behaviors, and so some people um, are unable to, to get past that step and so that's why um, I would say that it's different for everyone. I've seen people taper off with methadone successfully. I've seen people taper off with methadone and then end up back in treatment because of relapse. I've seen people end up back in treatment who haven't relapsed but had some fear about relapse and everything from people who 
still can't stop using heroin to people who stop using the day that they start the clinic, everything in between. Like, again, it's about the individual and supporting mm-hmm. what their, their treatment goals are. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the, your thoughts on safe injection sites. And my understanding is that there are safe injection sites in Canada, Australia, and Europe have these, and they've had them for quite a while, and that there have been attempts in the U.S. around it, but we don't really look at that model. What are your thoughts on that? So, I, you know, I'd say that I'm a huge proponent for harm reduction, and right now, I mentioned before, um, that I'm actually in the Bronx right now, which has multiple harm reduction centers, and as I was I'm here taking my son to basketball practice, and as I'm walking in the building, parked right in front of the building is a couple with their car door open that are injecting in plain sight. And so I don't think that people are doing this. People do this out of a lack of options, and I fully support safety and having options for people who are still in their active use. You know, I think it's probably better for everyone to 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 have these centers exist, you know, and to introduce the same sort of services that we have in methadone treatment, which is access to supportive services and mm-hmm. health care. Why so, do you think it hasn't taken off in this country like it has in other countries? I still think there's such a huge stigma surrounding drug use in spite of the evidence that it's, it's here, it's been here, and it will probably stay until people start examining their attitudes towards addiction and people who use drugs. And I feel like there is just, uh, there's such an association with drug addiction and I feel like poverty because you, it's more visible if people are using out on the streets. I mean, just like the story that you told where drug addiction is something that many people struggle with, but we see some of it and we don't see some of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, and I think that that's, people see what they want to see and people are very comfortable with certain narratives surrounding a variety of things, but in particular drug use. And the narrative is, is that, oh, them, those people, the poor, you know, disheveled, down and out people mm-hmm. that are using drugs. But it's like, it's everywhere, it's everyone. Like, you know, look at Hollywood. Right. It's, it's everywhere. And as uh, a doctor and someone who works in this, how would you want people to understand addiction. So in a way, how do you um, define it? I would define addiction as the definition according to the Society for Addiction Medicine is a chronic relapsing disease. And according to the 12-step movement, a chronic relapsing disease, it's a brain disease. And, you know, when you think about it as a disease, it takes a lot of the stigma away. So I think that's an important way to define it. But I also think it's important to look at the fact that it's also a result of how the human brain functions. Like, we are wired for addiction. We're all creatures of habit. And for some people, their habits just happen to include drug use. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website 
at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, and today we are talking about addiction and recovery. So that was part two of the interview with Dr. Alam. And so we're going to move on to an interview that I did with uh, local Brattleboro resident, Jed Pop. Um, He uses, um, he's part of Turning Point, which is on um, Frost Street um, in Brattleboro. And he was very candid about his own struggles with addiction and recovery and the different factors that um, were involved in recovering from opioid addiction and kind of how complicated it is and adding on to the, because Dr. Alam talked a lot about medication assisted treatment. And so he talks about like what he um, kind of beyond, even beyond medication assisted treatment, what he needed in order to get clean. For talking to us today, Jed, can you start by talking briefly about your own history with addiction and recovery? I started using opioids when I was about 21 years old, and quickly they became uh, a pretty powerful entity in my life where uh, within within a year, uh, my life was completely engulfed by having to have them just to function daily, um, having to have them just to uh, do, you know, just do daily activities, showering, um, going to work, uh, cleaning the house. Uh, I, I, I couldn't do uh, anything without, without taking, um, without using. And the previous eight years were um, a lot of alcohol use, a lot of uh, marijuana use, um, a lot of cocaine use, but nothing really kind of grabbed me uh, like heroin and, and, and prescription drugs did. Um, opioids did. Uh, it was within a matter of a couple years, I entered my first rehab. And from there, from that point, um, my life was was very unmanageable. Um, for the next, I'm going to guess, eight years off the top of my head. Uh, it was in and out of rehabs. It was being evicted from 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 apartments um my fiance at the time really cared about me and did what she could do but she didn't have enough knowledge of what addiction was and um her love led to enabling um and it just became too much for her and she eventually left and at that point in my life it I would say it was probably the the darkest points of my life where I had no housing. Uh, I was staying with people who were actively using, and that just doesn't go over well uh, when there's a household of people that that use together. And and one day, six years ago, six and a half years ago, I woke up, and it was kind of that aha moment um, because I was introduced to treatment before and recovery before i i kind of knew what i wanted i i knew what i wanted to do i just i never had the motivation in, in those previous years as i did when i had that aha moment so i came over to brattleboro to to being homeless um I, that that was my choice 
I could have kept on staying with, with people over in Bennington, but I just didn't want to live like that anymore. So came over here to Brattleboro, got connected with Habit Opco in the turning point, and I was introduced to uh, recovery even further uh, through the recovery coaching program here at the turning point. I would say pretty quickly uh, changed my life having that person that understood what it was like to lie in bed for days and weeks at a time going through withdrawals and and losing everything and having nothing um, really helped me. So what were the different pieces of your recovery? Did you did you use methadone and Habitopco and did you did Turning Point provide counseling or like what were the different aspects of recovering for you? So because the Turning Point is a peer recovery center, they don't offer uh, counseling or any clinical services here. But however, I did get that through the retreat. I was in a relapse prevention group there for for about four years. So there was that aspect there. I met my individual uh, clinician that I still see to this day. Um, so there was those clinical services that I did have. Habitatco was a big piece of, of my recovery. You know, like I said, for those previous eight years, I struggled. Going through withdrawals was, was very, very difficult for me, as it is with everybody going through withdrawals from, from heroin. Um, I would literally lie in bed sick and, and just wish that I was dead uh, because I, I felt so empty and so hopeless inside. And it was just day after day after day of that um, and no sleep and, and just everything that comes with that. Having medication-assisted treatment kind of took that aspect out out of, of that for me. So in a sense, I was still getting, you know, that chemical into my body, but it was in a place where I received clinical services. It was in a place where you know, people cared about me, where I was watched and where I was given UAs. Essentially, you know, I was, I was being held accountable for my actions there. And, and I really needed that at, at, at that point in my life. And then, you know, another big piece was was the peer community. Uh, when I came over to Brattleboro, I, I came to the turning point. It really, it was really difficult for me to, to walk through the doors. I came from Bennington and there was a turning point in Bennington and people always mentioned to, to stop by there, but I, I just, I didn't see the need. Um, I always thought that I could do it on my own. And for the first time, and, and my addiction, I, I realized that I could not do it on my own. So I picked up a plant pamphlet for the recovery coaching program and thought that I would give it a shot. And my first, my only recovery coach I, I had was, his name was Elmer. And he was well known in the community. A lot of people looked up to him. There's there's people that say they do do good and they say they work a positive recovery program. And then there's people who you can see that are working that program. And, and Elmer was. He was he was definitely a person who, who worked it, who helped a lot of people. So I really, really respected him. And I knew that his caring for me was genuine. Um, he knew that I was suffering. And, and so what that did in a sense was that opened up the door for trust. 
And for me in early recovery, that was extremely difficult to come by. You know, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't even trust myself, let alone somebody else, but I did. And because of that, there was hope. would look at Elmer and I would think, man, if this guy can get off the streets, if this guy can get through what he went through, then so, so could I. So that was Jed Pop, who's a local Brattleboro resident. Um, when he and I talked last night, actually at the at Turning Point, about his recovery, and one thing that struck me, because he and I talked for a little while um, after we finished the interview, and it struck me how he talked a little bit to me afterwards about how finding meaning in his life helped him stay clean and made getting clean more possible, and. And it just makes me think about how so many of us have struggled with finding meaning in our lives and like living rich lives where we feel like we're connected to people and we're making the world a better place. And that's not just uh, something that addicts struggle with or something that people on the street struggle with. And so many people who work and have homes and are not do not have substance problems like struggle with that and... So I guess for me, like I, I imagine a, a better world where there were people were more connected and that people had an opportunity for more healthy activities and healthy connections in their life, being a world where people were less inclined to addiction. Yeah. Okay. We are going to just take a quick song break and then we're going to come back um, to Jed and Kelly's interview. This is... The Pretenders, I'll Stand By You. Oh, why you look so sad? The tears are in your eyes. Come on and come to me. Shame to cry. Let me see you through. Cause I've seen the dark side too. When the night falls on you, you don't know what to do. Nothing you confess could make me love you. Kelly with Indigo Radio, and we are talking about methadone addiction recovery, and you were just listening to Jed Pop, who Kelly talked with last night at Turning Point, and we're going to go back to the second part of his interview. You know, the Turning Point to me was this pathway into many, many different opportunities of, of recovery that I could choose from, and, and, and I did try other other things in, in recovery other groups and and some didn't work for me but the ones that did work for me worked really well before I knew it I had this I, I was feeling better about myself um, I had a decent job and 
I, I had friends in my life. So those three components, the medication-assisted treatment, clinical services, and the peer community were my three supports, main supports in, in recovery. And so then um, were you able to get off the medication-assisted treatment? Um, I, I'm, I'm actually still on it to this day. I've been on it for, for a little over six years, and my uh, about three years into it, um, I, would al- I always thought that I would be on it for the rest of my life because, because of that lack of hope. But as I was going through some, some difficult, challenging moments in my life and working through some parts of recovery that are just really, really difficult to get through, that were difficult for me, I, I kind of had an idea that I didn't want to be on it for the rest of my life. And I thought that starting to taper would be uh, a good idea. And, and I did, and I tapered very slowly. And to this day, I'm still tapering very slowly. And if I'm going at the pace that I've been going at, I'll be off of it in about six to nine months. So um, still still an important piece of my, of my recovery I used for many years. And I've, I learned that if I just stop doing something abruptly, that is going to lead to something bad. So having the opportunity to, to, to come off real slow from it was and, and still is crucial to me. For me, it was a key element and, and me living a quality life, me living a healthy life, and then me being an active member in the community. Uh, so you talked a little bit about Turning Point already, but can you say a little bit more about if somebody walks in the door at Turning Point, like seeking help? what would they encounter and like what kind of support here is offered for people struggling with addiction? So immediately when people uh, walk through the door here, there's somebody sitting at the desk to greet them, which is very important. Um, We want people to feel welcomed. We're located at the corners of Elm and Frost and it's a restored house uh, that we were able to acquire inside. It's beautiful. So immediately it's bright, you know, the walls are painted with bright colors. There's pictures everywhere. Um, for me, when I walk through the doors, I, I, I really feel that sense of community. There's people playing pool. There's people sitting down at the table on their computers, people watching TV, people reading. There's recovery coaches on, um, on staff all the time. There's volunteers here. So you know, immediately people will be greeted with people with similar life experiences. Um, And like I said before, that was very important to me. And I think it's important to a lot of people that the people that help them or just the people that they even just simply communicate to um, have those shared life experiences. And and mainly the turning point is is a peer recovery center. It's a safe place where people can go in the community um, and just be themselves and and have that opportunity to open up and and to breathe because not a lot of people understand what it's like to be in recovery. Um, And that's really the sense of that's that's the feeling that we want to create here. There's no clinical services here. Um, it's, It's strictly peer services. There's groups here 
Uh, there's the All Recovery Group, there's Smart Recovery, there's Recovery Coaching. Uh, somebody can get uh, a recovery coach. Um, and I'm often asked, is, is a recovery coach uh, similar to a sponsor? And yet they both have their pros. Um, recovery coaches are not uh, similar to sponsors. We're a mentor in recovery and we help people find their strengths um, and, and use motivational interviewing to, to help people gain that sense of hope, you know, to help people see that they are worth it and that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And there's also 12-step meetings that are held off hours, and there's other meetings that are held off hours uh, to uh, different com community resources and agencies. And we just we want people to feel comfortable here. You know, we want people to, to feel like they matter here. Another great thing about the Turning Point is there's, there's a kitchen here. There's always food. We have a meal every Wednesday that's open to the public. Susie Walker, our director, her door is always open. And one thing I, one thing that I feel is is pretty pretty neat about the center here in Brattleboro is that if you go upstairs, you can meet meet our cat, um, <laughs> and her name is Luna. And for me, that's really special because a lot of places that I would go in recovery, whether it be clinical or therapeutic. I never went anywhere where there was a cat, which is really cool. So when you think about Brattleboro, because there is so much opioid use here, what do you think that Brattleboro needs more of in order to address the problem better and support more people who are struggling with addiction? Understanding and empathy. I think those are two, two key elements that we could add to our community. Um, and I'm not saying that we don't have that already because I feel that we're already a loving, caring community. But on a daily basis, I see addiction and I see, and I also see recovery in our community. And I see people who, who don't understand what that's like, who, who just, you know, look down or they judge or they're, you know, stigmatized people living with, with addiction. And for me, it, it, it took a community. It took a community to help me see that I was worth something. That's such a key, key aspect, community. You know, I hear, I see people pointing fingers um, almost every day. I, I, I hear blame. And for me, I just see that there's, a, there's something that we all could do. And we, there's, there's a part that we all could play in this and, and even if it's just having more empathy for people because people living with addiction don't choose to live like this i'm wondering because you said you had you had been living in the streets and also that you had been staying with friends who were using and i know that um being around people who are using is conducive to using more so i'm wondering how housing and either having housing or lack of housing um aided or inhibited your recovery process that's a great question. So lack of housing, um, I was homeless in Brattleboro for over a year. And I, I just, I was around people who were using more. Just That's just the way it was. And it was extremely difficult for me. And, and I relapsed 
I think in my first six months, I had my first relapse while I was still homeless. And I just, I just remember it being really, really difficult to be in those situations. It seemed like everywhere I went, it, it was in my face. But getting connected, I, I got connected with a local housing agency, uh, Pathways to Housing. And they're based off of the housing first model. So it's, you know, we want to get this person housing before all these other things are fixed. So before this person gets a job, before this person gets clean, this person needs housing. And that completely changed my life. When I, when I got my apartment, I was able to, I was in a safe place. I mean, hands down, I think that's what the, the biggest thing was, is that I was in a safe place. I was free from all the elements, uh, the weather, snow, rain, and I was able to, to focus more on myself. I didn't have to spend so much energy walking around. I didn't have to spend so much energy trying to find something to eat. It was all there under my roof. When I was homeless, it just uh, I was in these places that just weren't safe. And when I was staying with people who were using, it was because I, I was so fearful of being out of the out in the elements that I just con- continued to stay with them. And once it's in, once it was that close in my face, it, it was nearly impossible to, to stay away from it. So there's, for me, the housing piece is, is key. And I know it's something that this community you know, is working really hard towards to, to try to get housing for everybody. Uh, but it's something that uh, we just don't have the resources right now for that. Okay, that was Jed Pop and Kelly Juno speaking last night at Turning Point. And Kelly and I want to thank both Jed Pop and Dr. Rashia Ilam in New York City for spending time with us and putting this show together. And we have a couple minutes to wrap up here. Kelly, I'd love to ask you your thoughts. Yeah, I guess my my kind of closing thoughts are, again, what I said at the beginning, thinking how, how do we think about uh, addiction and the current um, opioid crisis as not individual but societal? And I do connect this to the self-soothing behaviors that really everyone is engaged in at some level, shopping, phones, um, TV, sugar, all these things that we engage in that are soothing and that in some ways are self-medicating and help us numb from the world, which right now I think is a pretty hard place to live in for most people. Mm-hmm. And so when I think, look at people who have addictions to other things that are more serious, I, I feel like a sense of understanding because of um, the ways that I also use other addictions or other self-soothing things to kind of numb out from the world. Yeah. And I think during this show, for me, one of the things I feel more clear on is that methadone is important for people. And I thought Jed's uh, interview was great and really listening to his experience and how it does take a long time. Uh, what I do know is that I'm against making profit off of disease and illness. And that is something that is ongoing, not just with addiction and recovery, but with other uh, illnesses. And a lot of what you just talked about, I just think about the sugar industry, right? And 
that really when I think about, I know people describe and define addiction and recovery in different ways. And what's most important to me is where did the, the pain come in the first place? And what are we doing to look at that? And I think that Jed's um, example of housing is so important it is that one thing that really helped him was getting housing. And so what are the other things that need to be put in place to help people in recovery and, and fighting addiction? Well, thanks, Anna. Yes, thank you. And I also want to bring attention. There's a couple things uh, in town that are happening. One is that at the Brattleboro Museum, um, happening October 4th, I believe. No, October 5th. There's a recovery-oriented exhibit and it's called, If She Has a Pulse, She Has a Chance. And it's by Michael Poster, who is a photographer. And looks like he works at Turning Point. Or, yeah, he is a volunteer at Turning Point. And he's taken photos, personal stories of people in recovery over the last two years. And this uh, is opening, the opening reception is October 5th. It's an alcohol-free event. And it's at the Brattleboro Museum and Art Center downtown. And the other thing I just wanted to also talk about is Brattleboro Solidarity. And it's Indigenous Peoples Day is coming up. Yes. Very soon. So there, we're having an event on Friday, 5.30. October 5th. At Pliny Park. Yes. Thank you, Kelly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. From Pliny, at Pliny Park, Friday, October 5th. From 5.30 to 7.30, we will be out on the streets. We're going to be hosting an evening of community conversation. Uh, what is the legacy of colonization? What should be our collective resistance? How do we stand in solidarity to indigenous struggles? So there's going to be short videos projected and a place to really discuss this. And then on Saturday from 9.30 to 3.30, there's going to be a teach-in, the pedagogy of indigenous resistance and solidarity that you're also welcome too. And we'll put that information on our Facebook page. We need to get ourselves out of here as we're coming up on the hour. And we want to thank our listeners. We will be back next Sunday. And uh, this show will also replay Tuesday at 3 o'clock. And Kelly, you want to tell us a song we're going out on uh, here? This will be Macklemore's Drug Dealer. Thank you. Said it wasn't a gateway drug My homie was taking subs And he ain't wake up the whole while These billionaires, they kicked up Paying off Congress So we take their drugs Murderers who will never face the judge And we dance into a song About a face gone numb But I seen homies turn gray Noses draining blood I could have been gone Our 30s faded in that tub That's Prince, Michael and Whitney That's Amy Ledger and Pimpsy That's Yams, that's DJ AM Goddamn, they're making the killing Now it's getting the tension Cause Sarah, Katie, and Billy But this shit's been going on from Seattle out to South Philly, it just moved about the city and it spread out to the burbs. Now it's everybody's problem.